And we are live with Dr. Josh Starr, CEO of PDK International, former superintendent of the Montgomery County Public Schools, and just a you know respected expert in the field of education, which is what I like to tap into on this broadcast. People smarter than me who can help me understand the world. I have questions when I think about education and where we're at. And I don't have lots of answers. Right. <laughs> I have answers I think I do. But Josh, thank you for coming on this morning. My Appreciate pleasure. It. Thanks, for, uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to having a conversation. Well, you know, you're particularly well-suited um, to help me out with a couple of things that I'm, I'm thinking about. One is just educational leadership in general. Um, is it viable as it always has been? You know, is it an attractive role to take to lead districts, to be a superintendent, to be a principal, um, just where do good leaders come from? I have these questions around, is the job too politicized to even do anymore? Um, and if we've just hit an era that's different than before in terms of public opinion about the role of schools and tests and and measurements and teaching and learning, like, are we just in this Trumpian post-truth era now where we can just drop everything that we've done before and and, um, and call it a day. I do want to start with this quote. You wrote something in 2018 that I thought was interesting oh. for this conversation. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, you had you wrote about bold leadership in mm -hmm. uh, 2018. What kind of bold leadership do we need? And there's this quote, if they want to take bold action to confront inequities in their school systems, superintendents must be willing and able to afford to burn some bridges along the way. What are some type of bridges that you would have to burn to be a good leader? So when I was in grad school, uh, we used at Harvard Graduate School of Education, the Urban Superintendents Program, and we, we learned from some of the best, right? The Rudy Cruz and the, you know, Beverly Hall before Atlanta and all the, you know, Tom Pazan and Carl Cohn and all that. And there's always talk about what's the hill you're going to die on. Mm. Like, you know, as Rudy said, and I, 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 people attribute this to me and I always say it was him, you know, you're going to get fired. So <laughs> you're get fired for. Yeah. And, and I actually, as I've gotten older, I don't know that that kind of polemics actually is helpful, but I do think particularly back then, you, you know, you need to take a strong stand around equity and, and issues that just are right or wrong. And I think that, you know, you, you're going to, the, the bridge burning is, is just this idea, you know, you, you got to take a stand for things. And sometimes it's not popular, um, you know, but you have to do it in a way that helps people understand why you're doing what you're doing. And they have a right to transparency and they have a right to understanding how decisions are going to be made. But you, you got to, I mean, it sounds so trite, but you know, you, you got to do the right thing. And some people are just never going to agree with you. And that's okay. You know, and I think some some leaders do either they have the false impression that you can somehow develop a process where everyone's going to agree or they're not able to sort of brook the discontent that that folks will, you know, that, that will emerge. Um, mm -hmm. And the problem is, you know, I wrote another piece about most people are silent but reasonable. You know, the fringe is dominant and that's what we see out there more and more now. The fringes dominate and and the the listservs, the citizen reporters, you know, citizen journalists, the Facebook posts, the frenzies that that emerge on the frenzy that emerges on the fringes tends to dominate the discourse and influence the politicians. And that's, you know, that that that's where a lot of the problems um, kind of stem from in, in how you lead public education systems. I mean, you mentioned the idea that if you're doing the bold work, you're going to get fired. I mean, it's it's a stereotype or it's a truism or it's a, you know, it's a flagrant thing that you've heard in the past uh, people say, but where's the grain of truth in that? I mean, you know, do you really have something to be worried about as a superintendent if you really are ready to stand on a hill and, and die on it? Yeah, you do. Um, you, you do. I mean, look, there's some and, and there's some folks out there that are masterful and are able to, to you know, figure out how to engage their communities and move things along. And then there's some people that I call slash and burn superintendents, right? Mm -hmm. Who are really good at causing a ruckus and not really good at building systems. Um, and, and there's always this, you know, you always got to figure out like how far 
you can push and where you pull, where you cajole, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And and some people can claim the mantle. Well, I got you know, I, I did what I was what I said needed to be done, and the union didn't agree with me or the politics. And they don't really do the work to try mm -hmm. to bring people mm -hmm. along. So you do have to find the right balance. But you know, th there's there's also structural disincentives for bold leadership, particularly in smaller districts, right? And it's called pensions and mm -hmm. families, right? And I, I talked about this, you know, written about this when I was in Connecticut. You see a lot of superintendents move districts, right? They spend five years in this district, five years in that district. The pension system is such that you don't want to leave the state. Mm -hmm. right for 30 mm -hmm. 35 years so you you can't do anything that's going to you know be too out there because you might not get hired by another school board right that's mm -hmm. one and the other is families it can be really hard in a family when you have to either move a lot um or you know you don't want people saying things to your kids i mean i've had that before um uh you know publicly or whatever it might be you got to protect your kids and sometimes that may keep you from doing some of the bold work if lots of folks are going to get upset about it yeah, I've actually said this to um, Kaya Henderson, who um, talks lovingly about the job, uh, and she had a above average tenure in D.C., but that seems like an outlier to me in some ways. And what I've seen just up close, having been through maybe four superintendent searches, is how much of a game it kind of is. Like, you know, the same 16 people are in a pool of the same 20 to 25 districts that are looking mm -hmm. at different levels. And everybody has an ambition for a school board to be scrutinizing when they're hiring. Um, the school boards often, having been a school board member, have this idea that you're like hiring somebody for a long time when actually mm -hmm. all the science tells you you're not. Right. right. Like, I mean, what's the science telling you? You maybe three years? I, you know, the, the data are kind of unclear now, right? Because you're still mm -hmm. getting some of the big urban, you're still, I mean, it's still three to four, but now we're starting to see folks stick around for longer and they may be there, you know, six or seven or something like that. Um, I think superintendents also are recognizing that it's, you know, we're, we're not in the era of the savior superintendent anymore, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. of the people come in and, you know, on their white horse. I think we're starting to recognize that that kind of leadership is not the kind of leadership that is really going to move the needle. I mean, look at what Sonia is doing in, in Baltimore city, Baltimore, right? Look yeah. at Susan Enfield yeah. in, um, uh, in Highline. Look at, I mean, Carvalho in, in Miami, right? I mean, there are people that have stayed for a long time and have done mm -hmm. solid work and it's not, the I'm going to burn the house down kind of work, right? It's going to, I'm, I'm going to build the system up and, and figure out and get in there and roll up my sleeves. And I'm not looking for, you know, the, the, the next job unless I'm, I'm forced to. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that kind of leadership because uh, mm -hmm. folks realize that, that, you know, co collective leadership is a lot more important these days than, than just being the person out there who's right. I mean, it, you know, if you're right and all alone, there's, there's, there's no value in that, right? Does it feel like um, it's honest to say that there aren't as many candidates as you would like in the pool versus number of superintendent jobs that are open? So I think I think there's two challenges here. I think, mean, yes, th th that's definitely the case. And I, I speak to folks, you know, deputies and assistants, like, or even, you know, principal, like, when are you going to think about being a superintendent? Like, nope, I don't want that job, right? But I also think we're limited in how we think about it, right? Um you know, women don't get jobs in as much as they should, right? Mm -hmm. Leaders of color don't get jobs as much as, as they should. So we tend to look at, so we only look at the traditional pool, right? It may be limited. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we have to expand our notion of, you know, um, of, of who can be a superintendent. I think we also are oftentimes looking for folks outside. And I've always been the outsider coming out. And I actually think that, that in many ways, it's better to cultivate folks from inside. The system, um, but I think some of the traditional experiences that superintendents have had—you know, you go from the teacher to the AP to the high mm -hmm. school principal to mm -hmm. don't always make, you know, aren't necessarily the, the keys to, to being a great superintendent. Um, and I think that, that the pool may be limited because we don't we 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 make certain you know a, a sandbox that's pretty small mm -hmm. for people to play in, frankly. 
So I'm going to name names and um, and just if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to like answer to it. But I'm uh -huh. just going to name names because I have like real world examples. Yeah. Uh, Valeria Silva was the superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools. Um, St. Paul Public Schools years ago had um, Pat Harvey um, as a superintendent and then um, uh, uh, did some great work and left. And there was, you know, some interim folks in between. But Valeria Silva came through the system. She came to the United States, learned English um, um, very quickly, became an aide and rose all the way up from aide to superintendent within the district. Yeah. And she was there only a year and a half, maybe two years, I want to say. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong who's listening and who knows the story better than I do. But, you know, she had a strong, her hill to die on was equity. Yep. She had a strong kind of like sense of, of what needed to be done. And she had been in the system for a long time. She wasn't some outsider. And um, I, I can remember coming to us and saying, like, we talk about um, um, poverty being the thing, but in our district, Black children in households that are earning $200,000 a year are doing worse than white kids that are, in, that are poor. Um, so we have a problem that we need to talk about that goes beyond just black people are poor. And I yeah. thought it was a pretty bold thing to say. Anyways, short story is they ran her out of town at a certain point. They paid her $750,000 on her contract just to get her out because she was pushing um, equity so hard meaning wanting to retrain people, wanting to bring in experts to help with, um, with the unions and others to be partners in recalibrating the racial dynamics of the teaching force in her city. Yeah. Couldn't have been more down with the team, came through the system, was a union member, was like an educator, was everything you would want, and they ran her out of town. Matter yeah. of fact, they paid her 750K to leave early, which I told her at one point, if anybody ever wants to fire me, <laughs> give me $750,000. Right, right. Like where have we come to where you can get almost a million dollars to leave? I, I love that kind well, of fire. We've seen that. We've seen that over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Ant Antoine Wilson in Oakland, um, the entire time he was there was harassed. Um, his family was harassed. His kids were harassed. He had to move out of the city um, because the harassment was so bad. Um, and he moved on to the next city. And of course, because they had people they wanted to be superintendent, they're another problem. You know, I don't want to just like pick on certain names, but right. we could tell these type of stories on and on and on and on. And eventually I get to the point where I'm like, who would want a job as a superintendent? Yeah, I mean, so I loved being a superintendent. I did it for 10 years. Uh, I loved being a superintendent. And I love not being a superintendent. Um, I, I have been thinking about, I saw something on Twitter this morning about Roosevelt's speech uh, about getting back in the arena. And I have been wondering, you know, do, do, do you need to be the man in the arena or the woman in the arena in some ways during these times? But it's a brutal job. Um, and I didn't realize it. And again, I loved it. I mean, I, I, you know, I really did. I didn't realize until I got out of it, how much it takes out of you and how much, get the crap kicked out of you. Um, you just, you know, no matter how well you're doing, no matter how right it is, it, it, it doesn't matter. You're going to get the crap kicked out of you by some folks out there. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to to uh, both Minneapolis and Oakland and, and exactly what happened there. I do think, though, when we put forward equity agenda, so look, putting forward an equity agenda as a, as a white guy is a lot easier in some ways than a leader of color. And when I work with teams where there is a superintendent that's a leader of color and it's a white team, I always say to the team, how are you protecting him or her? How are you out front? So it's not the leader of color who's saying, yeah, we got to do this work because the white people will come for them. We've seen that over and over and over. It's what happens. Um, and, you know, you have to have some degree of interest convergence, which, I, you know, uh, written about as well that you got to keep the white people happy in some ways when you have an equity strategy, which can feel really icky because you're like, why? But at the same time, they're gonna they're gonna exercise their political power and their muscle in whatever ways they can. Um, and so leaders of color, when they're pushing an equity agenda, have to line up so much power behind them that sometimes feels like it's gonna take like it it takes longer than it should. You have to compromise in ways that maybe you shouldn't in order to play the long game. Um, whereas white leaders can push in, you know, who am I going to piss off? I'm going to piss off my my suburban neighbors, and that's fine. So maybe, you know, my kid will get looked askance when they're at the, on the soccer field. But, like, 
you don't run the same risk as leaders of color in, in lots of ways. Um, and that's that's a that's a huge political challenge mm -hmm. uh, when when you know they're they're trying to lead an equity agenda. Um, and even you know when when I did the detracking work when I was in Stanford, it took me four years before I finally publicly ripped the Band-Aid off and said, okay, this is what we're doing. I built up to it. People knew what I was doing, but I didn't start with it, right? Not publicly. It, took, it wasn't until four years later that I said, okay, now we're now we're detracking, right? We're mm -hmm. gonna stop segregating kids in classrooms. Um, Cause you gotta line up all the pieces of the system. And that's that's hard work. And some folks, you know, they, they wanna see immediate action. These systems are so complex and entrenched that, you, you know, it's hard to turn them around quickly. You know, it really is. I mean, is that an argument against districts in the first place? It's kind of a flippant question. Let me let me set that question yeah. up a little better, because I do have a question about is it an argument? Like if I were to have Andy Smerick on on today, who I respect and, and have, <laughs> have read for years now in terms of this really kind of brutally provocative idea about maybe districts are just too um, um, administratively um, conjoined or not conjoined, um, restricted in ways of which we it, they never will be fixed. But you just mentioned detracking. Detracking is such one issue that has so many politics behind it that it could take you, that could be your year working on that. Now oh, say you're a superintendent, year. yeah, more than a year, a couple of years, right? The politics around the parents who think that you're lowering expectations for their kids. They're not going to get in Harvard anymore because you've got those other kids in the class with my, you know, my beautiful kid who's so smart. Um, so you can burn up a lot of political capital on that one issue. But what if yep. you have like five issues like that? Like you don't know how to teach reading in your district. You, you're, you have math wars in your district. You have a curriculum adoption process that's going haywire. You have three or four board members that are completely crazy, just yep. nuts, and go out and say weird stuff to the public all the time. And, uh, you know, Andy tracking and, and now boundary changes, my favorite did, one. Yeah, that, that, you're describing the work I did in Stanford. Okay. Like literally all of that at once. It's too much. Yeah. Josh, it's too much. It's like too much at once. Um, yes and no. I mean, it, it is what it is, right? You do have to space it out. When I first got to Stanford um, back in 2005, um, and well, I mean, I didn't know anything. I was 35. Like, I, I didn't know a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, yeah. I can't say I didn't know a thing. I, I did. But, yeah. you know, the, 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 the district was going through a boundary changing process because the voluntary integration policy, very, very diverse district. Every school is supposed to be within 10 percentage points um, uh, within the district average of um, minority students, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always re redistricting. We had to put that on pause. I did a whole curriculum overhaul, but that was my entry point into the detracking work, right? So I focused all our, all our detracking efforts, not on who sits next to whom, but on what kids are learning. So our we we our curriculum policy we actually had a PDK audit done at the time it was kind of funny to think about it now to show that there were like 150 approaches to teaching literacy in, amongst 12 elementary schools I turned it into a curriculum issue and a standards issue and No Child Left Behind actually gave me great cover because I said look our white kids are doing great our black and Latino kids aren't what's up what are we teaching them and then oh you realize oh kids are being segregated so it's an it's an entry point into this larger question of not who sits next to who, but what are we expecting of our kids? And is that equally distributed amongst all kids? And then what supports do we have in place? So you, the, the challenge for leaders becomes the narrative question, right? You you're going to have to do all of it. And even if you plan for all of it, you can only plan for 65, 70% and then stuff happens like COVID, right? So you have to create a narrative and a framework for people to understand the larger picture of what you're trying to do. And that way your decisions around all these different issues, whether it's redistricting, where you're gonna site a new school, um, you know, opening up access to AP courses becomes part of this larger vision and narrative that you have about the kind of experience you want your kids to have and the kind of community you wanna have. That's, that's the challenge, and, fr and frankly, that's what I, one of the things I love about being a superintendent is kind of helping people understand how it all fits together. I'm wondering about the sustainability of that role. You and I talked before we came on air just about the long hours you can work yeah. as a superintendent. You're coming in, you know, I, I've watched a couple of superintendents who I've been close to, um, you know, be at a community meeting that goes on forever at night. Right. 
and then another one the next night. And, you know, w- with an early morning meeting with political people the next morning, like with the mayor or somebody or whatnot. So full days, like long days of, of, of work and the sense of you're being paid well. Let's not cry too much. Superintendents are being oh, yeah. paid well. They're paying well above uh, what the average American worker is paid for anything. Um, at the same time, it's pretty taxing. Like if you have a family or whatnot and a marriage, you know, um, and someone says, you know, you can come work 12 hour days and be called names. Right. Be stopped in the grocery store and asked why you want to destroy public education um, <laughs> by people of every stripe. Um, be uninvited to certain meetings or, you know, whatever. I keep going back to, are you setting the the role up for not always having the best pool of people who want to do it? Um, the yeah. pool to me matters. The pool matters. The, the, the pool matters. Um, I think there's another huge issue on just preparation for it and the the real lack of of great preparation for for being a superintendent when you say leadership i mean mm-hmm. professional learning and, and education in general leaves leaves much to be wanted but yeah it it you know so it's interesting that for me i i feel really fortunate that i i did it when i was younger uh because it was it was all my kids my wife and kids sort of ever knew you know in some ways and we structured it so my wife had support from her family, from her mom and stuff. Um, uh, and I did a really long commute when I was in Stanford in order to create that. I, I commuted from Brooklyn to Stanford every day. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you create those structures. And I feel like I had the energy, you know, I mean, a lot of guys and a lot of women, you know, do it now. They have tons of energy and they're out there all the time. You, you feed off that, right? You have to be someone who wants to be out in the public, who wants to be doing that kind of work, wants to be a public figure. But a lot of superintendents also don't do that. I mean, not every superintendent goes to those meetings. You know, they go to board meetings, but they're not doing community forums. They're not out and about. They're just kind of doing the work of ministering. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know what the status of the pool is. I think. When there's a job open, you get a lot of applicants. Whether they're the right applicants who want to do it for the right reason mm-hmm. is a different question. Um, mm-hmm. But just just going back to what you were saying earlier, Chris. Like, so I, I mean, I, I respect the hell out of Andy Smarrick, of course. He's much smarter than I am when it comes to some of these issues. I don't know what an alternative though to district looks like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you know, David Labory, at historian, wrote a piece for us uh, just a couple months ago about um, the, in defense of bureaucracies. And in some ways, you know, the bureaucracies, if, if you can actually rewrite the rules, which we did in Stanford, right? Um, uh, I'm doing some of that work in Montgomery County too. Like if you can actually rewrite the rules, you can use the machine towards the right purposes. The, the question is the politics of it and whether the school board and the local funding authority has people on it that are actually going to support the right work and not just their political futures. And that's, that's where the rub is. It's not the district and the leaders in the district as much, although, I mean, sometimes certainly can be as much as it is the political context under which it works and how difficult it can be to move that. Well, I mean, unpack that a little bit. What the political, you know, teams, I don't know what you would want to call it, are the bureaucracy. That is what bureaucracy is, is it's, uh, sets of people that have interest in their administrative part of the beast. So I, I guess when I say that, I'm thinking about bargaining units, for instance, we had 16 bargaining units. I can remember one bargaining unit was one guy. <laughs> there was only one person left in the entire uh, union. And that was the guy who fixed our violins for us. And we couldn't outsource the violins because right. he, he was a union. He was a union of one. We had yep. 16 bargaining units. But if, if our superintendent wanted to turn left or turn right on anything, it wasn't like one set of people that, you know, that would it would require to get through to make it happen. Right. And there was a little bit of jealousy of um, non-district schools who could just qu- quickly on a dime get all the team together and, and turn to, to pivot, which you can't do in a big bureaucracy. Right. I mean, I, I actually... Um, yeah. So, so, so when you say you can't see a different, you can't see an alternative like Smerick can. Smerick sees a, um, uh, a alternative vision or whatnot. Does that still mean though we should stick with what we have because, you know, we, we haven't figured out what the alternative is yet. 
Well, I mean, people much smarter than I am will figure out what what we can do in the absence of districts, right? I mean, I I don't, you know, that's that's like a th- you know, it's twenty three years in public schools. It's like all I know, right? I'm limited in my thinking around this stuff, and I always try to figure out like the pragmatics of making what we currently have work better for more kids, mm-hmm. while other people think about what, what can be different. That's not. It's just not how my mind works, particularly because I'm so frustrated by how folks aren't using the levers that they have at their disposal to make things work immediately. Like you can immediately do things that'll that'll serve kids better mm-hmm. than we currently do, while other people reimagine what what the system could look like and what an alternative system could look like. Right. So, so what are some of those things? What are some of the uh, immediate things, the low hanging fruit that we should be doing? So, so I'm, I'm fascinated by the work that folks are doing around equity now that is all around the absolutely necessary piece of raising people's consciousness, uh, helping people understand the role of institutional racism that exists, all really important, right? They're, they're, they're drafting great language. They are doing powerful work to, yes, wait a second, we understand this racism in our schools. And then I asked them, okay, so who assigns teachers to kids? I'm like, well, the principal does. I'm like, okay, how do you know that your best talent is going to the most vulnerable kids? Well, the principal does it. Who checks it? Right. So that right there, you if you assign your most effective teachers to your to your most vulnerable kids, that is a clear equity stance you can take. That all it requires is you use your teacher evaluation data, like assume that your evaluation data is robust. Right. I mean, and we could argue that up and down, but assuming you have good data in place. I mean, that's true. You're hitting on all kinds of right? problems right can, now, right? Yeah. Right. So if your evaluation data is good, mm-hmm. right, and say, okay, Chris, you're the principal of such and such school. How did you assign your teachers to show me the evidence? Right. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Curriculum is clearly, I mean, curriculum professional learning are things you can do. Um, opening access to advanced courses, right? Looking at all the like there are things, there are rules you can change within how you currently construct your day and your schooling right that will change um that will change what kids experience you know um and you can point to evidence of of folks who do that kind of work right i mean again i I keep pointing to sonia but like look at what sonia is doing around curriculum Mm -hmm. that's that's a decision let's look at what kinds of books kids actually are reading let's look at what they're exposed to on a daily and then let's change that that's a that's a bureaucracy. That's a procurement issue, right? You can you, you know the, there's a decision making process. It's a policy issue, perhaps. You can use the tools of bureaucracy to say, no, I'm going to purchase a different kind of book for my kids, right? Or I'm going to implement the, you know this the 1619 pride, whatever it is, right? Those are decisions you can make within a bureaucracy. While other while Andy and those folks do the really important work of of envisioning what a completely different kind of system would look like. Mm. How important are school boards? Uh, um, well, let me back up just a second. When we talk about school reform, we often talk about the teachers um, as yeah. the central point of change, right? Right. I kind of believe that the teachers are very important. And I think a lot of, we have this argument, running argument of, you know, a teacher is responsible for very little of student achievement versus outside factors and all that. So let's Let's just put that to bed for, for, for a second. You know, the whole teacher thing. We right. rarely talk about principals and we're talking about superintendents right now. We rarely talk about that, but we really let school boards off the hook oh. for how competent they are. And we entrust them with an awful lot of power, like to yep. pick the executive, to, to hammer the, you know, I got five emails today from five people who told me that you're not being very responsive on such and such, you know, whatever. Um, how much more should we be thinking about school boards? And do you have a position or an idea of whether they should be appointed or be elected? So uh, I have to answer this question thinking about whether I or not I ever want to be a superintendent of schools again. Um, <laughs> well, I, right, right. I have written about this and, and I've written um, that the, my, my argument is that school boards should be appointed they should be appointed for six-year cycles and off-year uh, elections, um, and they should be appointed according to roles by and by the funding authority. So there's two different dynamics. One is, look, I've, I've met and had some school board members who are amazing, who have lost friends, 
who have gone to the mattresses for the right things, who have done all the right things in, in support of equity, um, in support of me. I, I mean, and I've had the opposite. I've had school board members that have been an absolute nightmare and they just have their own individual political um, you know, I, I, idea. Um, and, and they, you know, again, some of these people who get elected, they've been on the fringes to begin with, and then they get elected right to the school, but you know, to, to the school board, it's, it's crazy. Um, then, then there's the challenge of the funding authority, depending on the jurisdiction you're in. I don't know how many Apple works, but you know, in every place I've worked, you have your school board, but then you have to go to the local city council, county council, mayor to get your money. Right, and they have their own politics as well. And I actually think we need to make the school system more accountable to the funding authority, right? So that way the people who are funding it can't just throw stones on the side and say, oh, you should have done this, should have done that, but they've got some skin in the game. So mm -hmm. that's one thing. Um, and what we see with with school districts that have a great school board culture, look at Long, Brand, uh, Long Beach, um, California, Chris Steinhauser, Carl Cohn, and, and I just appointed um, somebody new. Uh, They've got a culture of school board norms that are deep and longstanding within that community, um, right? So you can create effective school board cultures, uh, but they are not held accountable. Um, they are they don't they, they they are not experts at all in actually teaching kids right or running systems, um, and they're elected. You know, it's a really tough position they're in. You're elected on. I'm going to fix special education. I'm going to make sure that every school does away with AstroTurf. I'm going to whatever. And then you get in there and realize, holy crap, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This budget is so complicated. How do mm -hmm. title dollars work? Wait a second. We have contracts, mm -hmm. right? And, and, it's a, and, and it's also, and I'll just stop on this. It's the only elected position in, an, in, a, jur in a local jurisdiction that is not, does not do constituent service. If you're your local county council person, you call and say, hey, my pot, there's a, been a pothole inside my house that, you know, hasn't been fixed in a month. What's going on, right? How come they don't pick up my garbage anymore? You know, whatever it may be. And, and you get a response. When you're a school board member, you know, you actually say, well, that's kind of not my job. Did you talk to the superintendent? Did you talk to the principal? And you act as a body. It's a very difficult position to be in. Hmm. Um, and, and I've seen some really bad behavior in the part of a lot of school board members in my time. And I've also seen some great, you know, behavior with school board members. I've seen um, both like you. I haven't seen an awful lot of expertise in the job. I've seen a lot of populism, um, negative populism, and very often anti-equity populism. Oh, yeah. Um, so I've seen a lot of good work erased because of, you know, um, people running on the negative rather than running on the positive. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look at what's going on in Montgomery County right now, right? You know, because they're talking about a boundary analysis. So the school board election is all about the boundary analysis and this fear that people have that, oh my gosh, the schools are going to be, become worse because they're going to be, um, uh, they're, they're going to be integrated in, in some ways. And the, it is, I mean, it happened to me when I was in Stanford, um, it's going on now in, in my backyard and it's ridiculous. You know, you know, it's interesting you bring up Montgomery County and you know more, way more than I'll ever know about it. Um, we had a guy come in named Don McAdams years ago. He wrote a book called yeah. um, What School Boards Can Do, Reform mm -hmm. Governance for Urban Schools. And uh, he did like three or four days with us as a you know retreat for our board to give us kind of some gold standard stuff. And Montgomery County was one of them. Like mm -hmm. it was one of the counties we, we studied. And we studied them, I think, on equity and integration um, as the gold standard yep. in a way, which makes it pretty interesting to me now of what we're seeing there. So you're probably, you and I are probably different on this point around, I'm very cynical around integration as a educational strategy. Like it, you know, it's a sociological strategy, but it's not an educational intervention at all. I agree with you completely. Um, and people who say like, it's the only thing that has ever worked. The one thing you have a lot of social science research that tells you that something like that it's a, it's a powerful tool integration. I'll say that. At the same time, when you say things like it's the only thing that has ever worked, my response is it's the only thing that has that could do good that really doesn't work over time because of the politics. Yeah. So you it works for 10 years until housing patterns change a little bit or you get a new construction site with these new houses over here 
And then all of a sudden there's a political reason to vote out the people that don't want to do what you want and want them to do. And that that's like Wake County uh, and other places that had like amazing integration plans that, you, you know, you vote people in and they they get rid of it. And that's that. What's Montgomery County's story from um, how do you get from being a gold standard to being the mess that they have right now? Well, let me first say, I'm actually in complete agreement with you about the integration issue. And it is a huge challenge, particularly as a white leader around this conversation. And I, I had that challenge when I was in Stanford when I said, and I probably shouldn't have, I said, well, wait a second. Can't we provide really great education in neighborhood schools, even if there are a lot of black and brown kids? And it was, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to integrate it. Right? It was just sort of a thought experiment question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, Rick Kallenberg and Hallie Potter, very good friends. I support their work, um, love what they do. But I always him, so look, guys, I don't understand how you can talk about integration without and desegregation because it's two different things, right? It's desegregating schools and integrating classrooms without talking about the instructional program that goes along with it and what you're, what's going to be different for kids. It's not just about who sits next to whom. Um, and I'm very frustrated at the absence of conversation about the teaching and learning that needs to happen when you're trying to support kids to achieve a higher standard than they were exposed to before. So I'm with you on that completely. Um, and well, I mean, I won't even go into like pre-Brown stuff and all that, all that, all that sort of stuff where we saw very different. So like part of the challenge with the integration and desegregation conversations, we don't know the counterfactual. If we actually provided neighborhood schools with a whole bunch of vulnerable kids with the resources they deserve and the teachers they deserve and the facilities they deserve and all that, would we see higher achievement? And if we would, then would we be talking about integration somehow exposing black and brown kids and poor kids to the white norm is is going to just be better for everybody, right? We don't have enough of the counterfactual to be able to to counterman that argue, and and that's a huge frustration on on my part. Um, so look, I mean, when it comes to Montgomery County, I, you know, it, it's really hard for me to talk about it in lots of ways, Chris, like that because I, I try to. And I don't want you to beat up on them. I you know, like from a ten thousand foot view, I would hate to have you like because you. No, were- so I think I think it's a couple things, right? So so I I give my predecessor enormous credit for taking a very clear problem and enormous resources, right? And designing a system that built on the culture and the structure that existed, right? A culture of progressivism, a culture of top-down kind of conservatism. They had a lot of money back then in 99, 2000, and a clear problem, no child left behind. Boom, everybody saw AYP get there, organized systems and structures, put them in place, Get that. I, you know, I followed the playbook in Stanford. I I, I read, um, uh, uh, you know, Stacey Childress and, and Dave Thomas's book on Montgomery County. We followed it, and it worked, right, in other places. Mm-hmm. And then things changed, right? Realized that there was no real strategy for the low, chronically underperforming kids. The, you know, the, the bubble strategy only gets you thus far so far and there was no real strategy for recognizing that there needed to be deep community engagement work there needed to be realignment of social services um there needed to be uh, a better strategy for chronically underperforming kids much more vulnerable kids and families mm-hmm. and common core happened and that whole transition right mm-hmm. um and now now we're in a different place right and and you know i think it goes back to what you said in the very beginning folks are so much more polarized now they're unable to even listen to somebody with a competing point of view. And they're so afraid mm-hmm. of, you know, white people, I should say, are so afraid of what's going to happen if their child does not get every possible advantage in mm-hmm. the world. And it's it's making our kids crazy and frankly, it's making our adults crazy. So actually, know. I think it's making your kids successful. I think it's the, th- it's the thing that creates pipelines of white people to lord over all of us. The incessant, obsessive yeah. uh, will to power of white parents is actually a completely valid um, instinct to maintain white supremacy. And whether yeah. we like, like, if we want to, like, you know, if, 
we really don't like to talk about this on the left because we don't like, like to imagine that there are Obama voters who would vote against equity when they do it all the time. I mean, just, all the time to look, look at it's uh, all the I would have voted for Obama third time. People have Facebook pages yeah. who are saying we can't redistrict. You're going to send our kids out. You're going to write all that kind of bull. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, and and you once you're in the inside and you're getting the emails from people that you know to be like the public liberals, like they have all the fundraisers for Keith Ellison and they do all the right things, you know, for Obama when he was running and whatnot. And they're sending you email <laughs> as a school right. board member that says, if you make my kids go to school with those kids, I'll pull right. my kids out and put them in private school. So, so I will say though, that I, and look, this is anecdotal. This is people I know, but, but this goes back to the silent, but reasonable thing. The fringes dominate, mm -hmm. and there are a whole bunch of regular old white people who just are like, yeah, you know what? Sure, I'd actually like to see some more diversity in my schools. You know, I, I don't understand how it's going to happen. I don't understand the disruption. You got to explain it to me. And no, 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 I'm never going to get out there and say anything because, you know, I, I don't want to stick my neck out. But there are more reasonable people they're not, they're just silent on the issue. And, mm -hmm. and that's the challenge. You know, I always tell the story, when I was in Stanford, two of my greatest allies, three of my greatest allies, um, were white upper middle class women um, who lost friends over supporting the detracking work. I mean, they literally lost friends over it. Mm -hmm. And they went, to, they went to bat because they knew it was the right thing. And I kept saying, man, can you please get more people <laughs> so that the fringe who are, you know, running for the school board against the D-track and all that kind of stuff, you know, they don't tell me like we're trying, but just people, you know, they'll listen to us, but they're not going to go out there and stick their necks out. So there are a lot of people like that. They just want a reasonable explanation. Um, and, and they want, you know, they, they want to understand what the impact is going to be on their kids. I think you're more of an optimist on that point than I am, <laughs> but I'll take it, you know. Um, well, think, both things yeah. can exist at once, right? You can have a... And I don't believe in the silent majority of good white people in when it comes to education politics in local school districts. I actually don't. I, I haven't seen that necessarily. What I've seen is the silent majority that actually... It's, uh, no, let me change what I'm about to say. What I've seen is the invisible white hand that destroys equity and you never know where it came from. It's powerful and it's silent and it happens in people's living rooms over wine and cheese and things are, are drafted up and made. School board meetings are taken over in ways. You get email campaigns and phone tree campaigns. You have political people call you Absolutely. from other political offices and say, I'm hearing lots of stuff about what you guys are doing over there. I don't know what you guys are doing, but you you better stop it. <laughs> um, yeah, I so I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that at all, Chris. I'm just saying both exist and lots of times there are so that absolutely exists and is powerful without a doubt. Organized. And then there are a lot of other folks who are just like, I don't really want anything to do with that, but I don't know what to do. And and they hear that, they, they hear what you're describing, and so then they they you know sort of just go along with that because it's easier. But if they were given an opportunity to engage in another way, might actually say, wait a second. Yeah, you know, this this could be okay, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, I don't know. That's, and frankly, that's what I saw, again, I go back to Stanford when we did the detracking work. Um, we saw that, you know, there was certainly a small, really, uh, uh, you know, a group that was really opposed to what we were doing. Most people were reasonable. And once their kids, they saw their kids were, were doing fine, they're like, I'm cool. This, this is, you know... No big deal. It's good for my kid. I'm not going to complain about it, even though someone told me on the soccer field that it was going to be a disaster. So, well, I like your optimism. I'm going to support it. <laughs> I'm going to support it because I just feel like I've become cynical over time and I want to be optimistic. I'm a Christian. I want to feel like there's good news and there's gospel, um, which leads me to another point where you're an expert, where I want to talk about this. I want to exercise some of my demons here. Right. Um, I have been looking for what I call the achievement gospel. We have all the bad news, but I want to know what the good news is. That's what gospel is. Gospel is good news. So I want to know what the achievement gospel is, and I want it to be science-based or, or evidence research-based so people can't decide whether. Uh, what I want to stop happening in education is people telling you that you can ingest Clorox and it'll kill uh, a virus. 
right? And right. and that's the analogy that we have in education right now all over the place. We really do have that going on. Yeah. So what I want is the good news. What really does, if black kids are learning somewhere, tell me about it and you know what's happening. But let me back up because PDK does a poll every year yeah. of teachers. And I feel like teachers are one of, um, I'm a little bit sick of the part of the, when we get to teachers because it feels very much, and you're going to push me back on this and I love it. Feels very much like a, a, a grievance culture, a martyrdom culture, um, middle class, white people mostly, mostly women who are college educated, who lord over an entire profession that is, I think, by public, uh, by the public polls that we see, pretty well respected. Actually, to be very honest with you, poll after poll after poll says Americans actually really do believe yeah. in their teachers and trust them. And poll after poll after poll says that teachers say that they don't feel enough love. They don't feel it, right? Um, I look at your poll and it's really so insightful to me. Like there's there, there's a big disconnect between how teachers feel and how the public feel about them. Um, and I wonder if you can, number one, help us talk, think about that a little bit. Like what's the gap? What's the rub there? And then I do have a question about how you guys decide which questions to ask. Yeah. So like, you know, what, what you zone in on. So, yeah, our poll, uh, it's not, if it's, sometimes we've been able to include teachers depending on, on uh, how big we can make the sample, but it's really just of the public. We have over the last couple of years, um, uh, we were able to raise some money to increase our sample size. So we were able to include teachers, but it's, it's really of the public. So I, um, so, well, so with, with some, let's just on that point though, with some feedback from teachers, like I'm seeing here yeah. about half of the teachers believe that their community values their, their work a great deal, but right. you know, Last year, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So I do think that there is, you know, this, this, I used to use this line back when I was a, a young teacher and then in grad school that the system breeds mediocrity. And in some ways it does, right? Mm -hmm. And I do think, I mean, look, you have 3.7 million teachers and like anybody else, you're gonna have some great ones, you're gonna have some terrible ones, you're gonna have a lot of people in the middle. Um, I do think there is a woe is us type of um, culture. And part of that is because the way the media, you know, look, remember, remember when Chris Christie used to go around saying, yeah, I would punch Randy Weingarten in the nose? <laughs> and that was completely acceptable. Right, yeah. completely acceptable. Somehow, teachers are the worst thing ever, and and again, I'm I'm limited in my thinking. I think about systems, and I think about how school boards and superintendents and central offices and principals and principals are really the most important person in the system. Mm -hmm. How they're supporting great teaching, um, and teachers are pretty much going to respond to the system that they're within, give or take, for the most part. Um, I, I, you know, and. And I don't, I don't think that they are. I mean, I love teachers, right? You know, I absolutely love teachers, and I've seen some some mediocre ones, and I've seen some amazing ones. And I think that that it's um, we, part of the challenge, Chris, is I think that like people only see their kids' teacher; they don't see all the stuff that goes on be, behind them, mm -hmm. and the bad decisions that can be made, or the good decisions that can be made that may constrain a teacher or may support a teacher, right? A teacher that's doing a great job typically is one that is not doing it in isolation unless they're that, you know, diamond in the rough it, it kind of school. They're, they're within a whole system. People don't see that. They're just like, oh, my teacher's great, right? Good. <laughs> or my teacher sucks, right? That, mm -hmm. They don't see all that stuff behind them. So I just, it's just not that that simple, right? Um, I mean, there, there is collectively, as a profession collectively, right. my rip on them is that it's a very narcissistic um, occupation. They can't stop talking about themselves. There is not a single conversation in educational policy at high levels where they can't stop pulling the uh, we're a victim martyrdom card. And you're just not respecting us. You're underfunding us. You're trying to destroy public education. You hate teachers. You're teacher bashing. You, you keep a going down the line. But you know, a lot of that's true. There's a lot of teacher bashing. There's, uh, there is absolutely. And they go around bashing There's people. a lot of attempts to destroy the teaching profession. Well, right? I mean, you know, but, but. The, what you just did exactly what I what like I think we we need to get out of which is they can never be wrong for anything. Oh, I don't I don't agree with that. They I can never be wrong for anything. Almost every conversation we have about them, the bad guy is going to be somebody else, and it's like that family member who knows why everybody else is wrong, but they never like. He, here's the thing that that I would like to see with the teaching profession. 
I would like to see them start proposing more things than they detract from. I would like to see them have a positive agenda that isn't just the billionaires are coming to kill us. People are trying to destroy public education. They're taking our money. They're taking our this. They're taking our that, which very much seems like what the right wing does all the time. You're, you're listening to the fringes also, Chris, right? No, like, no, 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 no. That's the main leadership of the teaching profession. That's Randy Weingarten and Lilly at a very high you're level. You're talking about the unions, right? But if you so national so, leaders of their profession, these are the national leaders of their profession. So I will also say, and I had this experience in Montgomery County, right? You look at the leadership in Montgomery County Education Association, third biggest in the country, mm. Mark Simon, and then Bonnie Collison, and then Doug Prouty. I mean, they led on equity issues more. They, they led the school district on equity issues. They, they were very clear and they were very forceful about not only going to bat for equity, but also making sure that people who were not fit to teach were not teaching. It's part of what made that system so strong. Mm-hmm. So you know, you can, you know, you, you know that there's the way the leadership may talk about it at the national level, and people can can argue that on both sides, right? Um, and find whatever data they want to support their position on it. Um, the facts are, teaching is under resourced without a doubt. Teachers are completely underpaid, right? Um, there's not enough differentiation either amongst the teaching profession. It's a whole nother issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the local level, right, they can be incredible leaders and do some wonderful things for kids, right? So there's just, I don't know. It, I, I find these sort of simplistic narratives troubling in, in lots of ways. And I, I do actually agree with you that sometimes teachers are their own worst enemies by not recognizing how the way we've constructed the profession actually constrains their ability to grow and change and get better. And a lot of teachers complain about that, you know, complain about their, their, some of their own leadership. I, I mean, you know, locally and nationally, this is a, what I'll tell you just from one guy talking. Locally, a fully, uh, a fully loaded teacher in Minneapolis public schools is high 80s, close to 90K. The majority of them don't live in Minneapolis. They drive in from the suburbs every day into a district that is heavily of color, but only has like 4% black teachers, right? So you have this entire workforce driving in every day who take their paychecks back to their homes where they live. And every reform that comes up that is good for kids of color, if it's something that they don't want to do within their job, they actually have a lot of power from stopping anything from happening with a good superintendent, a good board, a bad board, whatever you want. They kind of still have a lot of power and it's white power, just to be very honest with you. To tell the truth about that gets you into this idea that you're bashing when really you're only thinking about the kids. Like the, you're thinking about these kids of color who are captive to a school district that has failed them for dist- for years and years and years. Now that's on a hyper local level. Yeah. On a national level, you look at things like the badass teachers. Um, the Diane Ravitches of the world, the um, the kind of major narratives that they have around billionaires, school reform, dis- destruction of the public schools. They're good people that get wrapped up in this destruction of public school stuff. I don't ever see the narrative around um, we should be better teachers. There's there's classroom things we should be doing in the classroom. No, no, it is true that we're like the number one of the number one things in a school that can make a difference for a kid. I just don't see the leadership on the pedagogical um, rather than the political. So in a weird way, and, and I, I don't want to comment this, to, in, in, in a weird way, kind of go what we were talking about earlier about all the silent white people who actually would support increased diversity as long as they don't have to be public about it, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I've seen. Look, I, I, all I know is my experience. Um, and, and I will say that that there is a there has been a concerted effort by wealthy people and big businesses to try to destroy public education over the last 20 years. We've seen it in a whole bunch of different ways. Oh, you're going to kill me, Josh. Really? Oh, we get to the good stuff towards the end, right? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Like that wealthy people wake up in the morning because they're wealthy. No, and they I, think, no I don't think wealthy people, people wake up in the morning, but I think there's yeah. definite interest in trying to break up the public school systems. Right. And we see what's gone on with some of the, you know, the, some of the people who are behind the, the union bashing, right. That goes on the attempts to destroy unions. Right. And, and I, you know, and, and 
we, we just see how people have made money off of public schools, right, and have hurt kids. We see how some of the charter laws in Michigan and Ohio and Florida, places like that have hurt kids, right? So you got to own that stuff too, right? You look at even the incentives around spending federal dollars is all around the marketplace, right? I mean, people are getting, you know, so it's, it, and what we see at the local level, when you engage teachers in the problem solving at a school level or the local level, good things happen. If they're given the space to do it, right? If leaders are given the space, I mean, that, that's so. You know, they, it's like we operate in these two different planes, right? There's, there's this, you know, the the citizen Stewart versus Diane Ravage conversation that goes on up here, and then there's just principals and teachers trying to do good work for kids that's happening throughout, you know, fourteen. But, but you just, you just misaligned. You misaligned the thing. Diane Ravage is a millionaire who sent her kids to private school. Citizen Stewart is a parent of several kids in a historically racist school system, who's trying to produce kids who don't get have their 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 culture stripped of them. And we've got a five hundred year problem with the system itself. So those actually aren't even two parallels, right? Those aren't even. I'm talking about a very powerful white. Um, organization and all these, and we keep asking the, the question, how come there are enormous gaps between these racialized groups and these other groups, right? And there are lots of reasons for that. Some yeah. of them are sociological, so the, you know, history and culture, but in the schools uh, you know, that have served all kids well, typically what you see in my experience and what we see in the research room is teacher leadership, teacher engagement right? Teachers who are really learning together, they're collaborating, they're involved with great leaders. They're involved mm. in making decisions that are going to help kids, right? And, and when given that space and, and that, that authority and, that, and treated like professionals that way, they, oftentimes they do great things for kids, right? And mm. oftentimes what happens in the systems or the schools where the principal or the superintendent comes and says, nope, everyone's going to follow this curriculum, you know, uh, with, 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 you know, uh, and they don't get the learning they need. And I'm not against curriculum, of course, but they're going to follow this program, right? And if you don't do it, then then we're going to, you know, monitor you, and we're going to fire you, and you, it's it's because you did something wrong. That's when things don't work out, right? Um, when you actually engage teacher teachers in in the struggle, then they and in the learning, they end up doing great things, right? For the most part, if it, if they're supported um, and held accountable, right? That's what great schools do, mm -hmm. you know. I haven't seen as much of the trust teachers and good things happen stuff as I've seen. I'm not saying just trust. Like I'm not so, just yeah. saying, no, 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 no. I didn't say trust. You got to build yeah. structures. Yeah. Learn you gotta, structures. You got to what? Would, right. you, would you say? You, you got to build structures. It's not just trust. I, right. I, it's not, no. I'm, it's just like the whole autonomy thing doesn't work either. Just find me a rock star principal and give them the space. They'll do great things. That doesn't work either. Right. Yeah. You got to have systems. It goes back to what I said earlier around being, you know, defending bureaucracy. You got to have systems that actually support their learning, hold them accountable, right? Make sure that they get what they need to do good work. It's not just oh, trust and everything will be will be okay. I, I would never argue for that. I've never led that way either. So, um, as we wrap up on time, you know, I become a superintendent of a medium sized district, and I call Josh Starr, and I say, Josh, <laughs> I just accepted this position. Um, what can you tell me about what I need to do in my first 90 days here? Like what, 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 what should I do to just make sure that I establish honest leadership that has integrity, but is going to push for equity? What's the groundwork I should lay? So read the book, Managing Transitions by William Bridges and, and, and take a look at uh, Barry Jensen's work on entry. You got to set up two different processes, right? And this is not even thinking about COVID, right? This is just thinking in general. Um, you have to have a personal, story that you're telling to folks and a strategy for engaging with people around um, them getting to know you and you getting to know them and understanding the culture of the system, understanding what levers you can pull. Uh, and it's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of just getting out there and talking to folks um, to find out you know, what, what the real issues are while you're also reviewing all the documents and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, then you need a real transition process where you bring experts in from the inside and outside and have them focus on particular issues, teaching and learning, operations, culture, equity, right? Um, and then you gotta look at what the low-hanging fruit are, right? Are there some clear, quick decisions you can make 
to show that you are going to support equity, right? And then you have to understand what the impact of those is going to be. Um, you know, so some folks come in and say, well, we're going to change the high school schedule because, and then it, it falls back in their face, right? You got to figure out how far you can go on your own and how far, uh, you know, and, and how much you're going to need other people to help you, help you get there. And you're going to learn that by getting out and talking to folks, right? Um, it's a lot of what it comes down to. And, and look at the data. And the, the other thing is you got to figure, where right, I always ask people, tell me like what the three or maybe five indicators of health are in your system. Because every school district has like tons of data and tons of plans. Tell me what like the five are, right? You know, third grade reading, right? You know, ninth grade success, graduate, whatever it is, and focus focus on those. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's great, great advice. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Starr, for coming on today. It challenges my my outlook. I love your optimism, but I like your expertise more. I like your experience and your expertise and your knowledge. Folks who want to be in touch with Dr. Starr, he is the CEO of PDK. They do the annual PDK poll, which I advise you guys to read. Um, during the, the conversation today, you've seen across the bottom how you can reach Dr. Starr on Twitter. Um, he is at Joshua P. Star on Twitter if you want to get in touch with him. Thanks so much. Um, appreciate you all for listening and for watching. And Dr. Star, thank you again. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Really, really a lot of fun.